Okay, this morning let's take our Bibles again and turn to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be looking at this passage this morning and also other passages, so be ready to use your Bible today. And, um, you know, of all the times I've been in ministry, I really have never done anything on the Ten Commandments, at least like this. And it's been very interesting as I studied through these uh, how pertinent they are to our lives and to understanding the character of God. So I know they'll benefit you too as you understand and follow them. But Exodus chapter 20, we'll be reading verse 4 through 6. So follow along with me as I read. It says, You shall not make for yourself or anything or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come to your word, we thank you that we have it. It has been inscribed to us in a written form. And Lord, it has been tested and tried throughout the centuries, and it has proven to be genuine and accurate, that it it has come from heaven to earth. And Lord, you have protected it, and it has been preached preached throughout uh, time, and Lord, it will be preached until you come again. And so I just pray, Lord, that as we look at the Old Testament and the 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 very scripture that you decided to put in stone, that, Lord, you would impress it upon our heart and that we would be able to examine ourselves by the things that are contained within your commandments to evaluate uh, and also, Lord, to guide us in in, uh, living our Christian life and uh, interacting with uh, people within the world. And so, Lord, bless our time this morning in your word and Teach us what we need to know. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, by way of review, we looked at the first thing, the prohibition revealed in the second commandment, and of course that was the prohibition not to make them, not to make idols. It says in verse number four, you shall not make for yourselves an idol of any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. The second commandment uh, is really was very, very different from the first. That uh, The first commandment, of course, condemned the worshiping of false gods. The second commandment uh, make, condemns the making of any image or symbol, even of the true God, to be uh, prohibited by God. And then, of course, the second thing that comes underneath that is that of the prohibition of not to worship them. You shall not worship them or serve them. So it is always fitting, as I mentioned last time, uh, that uh, it's fitting to bow down to the true and living God, Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's fitting to do that. And, of course, we have many scriptures that tell us that, like in Genesis 24:26, then the man bowed low and worshiped, the Lord. So the, the command for anything else is prohibited. 
not to worship them, not to serve them, not to make offerings to them. So God does not want us to look at something that is visual in order to help us worship, nor something that is tangible in which we can touch and carry with us. Two situations in which a person may think about images is that of worshiping, of course, uh, God under the symbol of a material image, and then also worshiping God under the symbol of an intellectual conception. It may be alleged that the figure of wood or stone or metal is the real God. It is regarded by some as being only a symbol of the unseen presence to which the worship is actually offered. In other words, the visible form makes the visible God more real. Like, for example, in the the golden calf, actually this uh, golden calf that's in this uh, picture right here was a picture I took at the Louvre in in Paris uh, uh, from Egypt. It would look something like this. They took this from Egypt and they put it in the Louvre there. And so there was was a whole section on idols in in the museum. And, And because people are prone to do this, they still do these kind of things and they also do it in the sense of uh, intellectual conception, thinking about God and formulating a God in their mind that they could manipulate and uh, worship in the sense of who they think God is. They form for themselves an intellectual image of God and worship by means of that. Now, in both instances, the representation is is apart from the divine greatness and glory of the true and living God. Both really are guilty of violation of the first and second commandments because in one case, it really is the work of one's hands. And of course, in another case, it's the work of one's intellect. Uh, And for the purpose of worshiping the material or the intellectual symbol of an unseen God is actually a gross offense to the Lord which these commandments are forbidding to those who are followers of the Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, we know from the New Testament. So any attempt to portray God by creation would actually confuse the creator with his creation. And when that happens, uh, it actually diminishes the greatness and the sovereignty of God over all things, of being God Almighty, being God uh, omnipresent, present everywhere, and it would diminish all those things. So if someone needs some visible or tangible object, like crosses or statues or pictures and, and even other things like music, to get them going, in the sense, uh, to bring up religious emotion, to bring up thoughts about thinking about God, uh, when that, that would be uh, something that they would be in danger, whether it be in a, in a visible way or an intellectual representation of God, it actually would become more. And that's the danger of idolatry. The images become more than originally intended. So idolatry is a kind of worship that has been distorted from its original intention. And of course, that the very word, as I mentioned 
last time of, that it, it's connected to the sin of idolatry is iniquity. That means to it's a bent, it's a twist in the truth. And of course, then uh, idolatry is something that is not as it should be. It's not what God intended. Of course, that led us to the reasons for the second commandment's prohibitions. And the first reason was that God is a jealous God. In verse number five, it tells us there, you shall not worship them or serve them for the Lord your God uh, am a jealous God. And of course, the whole thought of jealousy brings to our mind, uh, how can God be jealous? In the sense, and the reason why we think like that is because we cannot wrap our wrap our minds around uh, this attribute, because jealousy is such a defect in for human beings that we 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 kind of kind of give the same definition of what we thinking it think it is with God, but it's not so because uh, it's more strikely it's more uh, gives us the understanding that listen. In God's self-revelation, uh, in giving us who He is, uh, God being jealous is just as it says in Scripture that He is a jealous God, jealous for His people, jealous for His will to be done, jealous even for His own name, like it says in this passage in Ezekiel 39:20. Five, for he says there that therefore thus says the Lord God now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name see God's jealousy is aroused when people worship anyone or anything besides him so keep in mind, man is not the measure of his maker. And further, human beings often show the corrupting effects of sin when they do act jealousy, but not so with God. God's jealousy, as I mentioned in J.I. Packard's definition, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite as human jealousy is, but his appears instead as literally praiseworthy zeal to preserving something supremely precious to him. And of course, that would be a godlike jealousy. And of course, a godlike jealousy would be zeal to protect a love relationship or to avenge it when broken. So the precious thing is God's covenant relationship with his redeemed people. God's jealousy is aroused in reaction to Israel's or anyone's violation of the covenant. As in a marriage relationship, jealousy rises when unfaithfulness is suspected in that relationship, and things go very bad when that happens. So God's jealousy is his fervent and passionate and protection of what, his, what is his. He will not transfer the honor that is due his name to another or some other object, as the Scripture informs us, as in a passage of Scripture like Isaiah. Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name, 
and I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. So God seeks what he should seek, and he should seek his glory. And where does he seek that? He seeks his glory in and through his people. He is a jealous God. His jealousy in all it displays are just as the scriptures point out. The Lord has a zeal for what is his. And what should our response be to that jealousy? Our response should be that we should be also zealous for the Lord. Our right response to God's love is to love him. Uh, so our right response to his jealousy is over to him is, of course, zeal for him, zeal for his person, zeal for his cause, zeal for his honor. So a zealous person in religion is preeminently a person of one thing. And, and really, when Paul says, this one thing I do, one thing that is on the mind of somebody who wants to be zealous for God and bring him glory is simply this, I want to please God. I'm going to find out what he wants me to do, and I want to please him. I want to advance his glory in the world. That's what I want to do. That should be for all believers. That's the motive of all believers every year, each year, is that I want to please God. How can I do that? I learn the word of God, I find out what it says, and then I live my life in a way that pleases God. And when I find that I'm doing something that doesn't please God, I quickly take care of it because I know that's sin, and of course that is something I repent of, and I put aside, put to death, and I press on to the high calling of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then God refuses to share his people with another God, whether made or imagined. God demands, he demands from those whom he has loved and redeemed utter and absolute loyalty. If his people betray his love, unfaithfulness, by, by their unfaithfulness, of course, he will vindicate his claim by stern action. And that's kind of where we left off last time because we find out that jealousy is not a dormant characteristic. It, it's a very, it's a verb that's very, very active uh, when someone is jealous. It's always uh, present in Scripture as a motive to action. And of course, for God, it's either action to wrath or mercy. In other words, God cannot let, he cannot let idolatry go too long without addressing it that God's jealousy leads him, on the one hand, to judge and destroy the faithless among his people who fall into idolatry and sin, and on the other hand, to restore his people after judgment and, and after he's disciplined and humbled his people to restore them. So what motivates God to these actions, either one or the other? The jealousy for his own glory. For it says in Isaiah again, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory, I will not give to another. He will not allow that to happen. That will never happen. So before I go and move into the passage this morning, I want to, let's take our Bibles this morning and just 
just take a peek at how prone the sons of Adam are to idolatry. Numbers chapter 21, and I want you to look at verse 1 through 9, but specifically verse 4 through 9. So here we see the judgment that God sends among his people for their disobedience. Of course, what was the sin that they committed here uh, in the wilderness? Well, it was that of just coming against God's leaders and God himself. Look at verse 4. I'll just uh, Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. It says this, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. Verse 5, the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. And then look at verse 6. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord, and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Verse 8, then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard or a pole, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. In verse 9, Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if the serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So this is what God's remedy was for their sin of coming against uh, Moses and himself by being grumbling, by grumbling and complaining. Now, that's, this same narrative is brought up by Jesus when he was speaking to the a spiritual leader and teacher in the nation of Israel, whose name was Nicodemus. Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about how, how to be born again, how to have eternal life, how to enter the kingdom of God. All right, And what, what got Nicodemus' attention when Jesus said this to him? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. That's what the light switch went on for Nicodemus, and he became a believer. All right? Right, because he knew that it was not something you had to do, but it was just simply like those people bitten in the wilderness by the, the snakes just to look at the standard. They would be healed just to look at Christ. That's faith. We can be saved, right? And we can be saved from the greatest sting, and that's the sting of death that will condemn us forever to hell. Now, saying all that, now take your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 1 through 6. 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. I think we'll look start at verse number 3 just to save a little bit of time this morning. So here in 2 Kings chapter 18, we will find the very instrument God used to carry out his will to, to save the people from the sting of the serpents. Now he must destroy. Why must he destroy it? Well, let's see. Look at verse number 3. 
It says, he did right. Now, this is King Hezekiah who came and did right before the Lord. He was 25 years old. Verse 3 says, he did right. That's King Hezekiah in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Verse 4, he removed the high places. He broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for made for until those days the sons of Israel burned incense to it. And it was called Nehushtan, which means bronze snake idol. Right? And it says in verse 5, he trusted, this is Hezekiah, trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him, for he clung to the Lord he did not depart from following him. He kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. So, in other words, the king, what he did was he trusted in, he clung to, he followed, he obeyed the Lord and his commandments. So we must learn from Hezekiah, because this is how we crush our idols, by repentance and by turning and living for God. But if you notice there, see, anything left around, just human beings are so religious, they'll, they'll, they'll bow down to anything. Relics, images, aberrations. They'll go running to all these things because they think somehow God is there. Matter of fact, that's only one example. I, I'm not even going to bring up the example of Gideon's ephod, where the Bible says that the people began to play the harlot with that. And so it became a snare to the household of Gideon because of these things. Now, you wonder why we can't find the ark or the, uh, the original ark of the uh, covenant or the ark that Noah was on, because you know what we'd be doing? We'd be bound down to that thing. We would be making something special about those things that are not special at all. They are just things. Of course, they have special significance connected to it, but... To worship it would be exactly what God says not to do. So, so we are very prone to make up a God in our mind or before our eyes and worship it. So this is not how God's children show love to God. Instead, our love for God is reflected by obedience to his words. See, God tells us how to love him appropriately. What did Jesus say? He said it real simple. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. That's pretty simple, isn't it? That, that, there's, that is probably the simple, uh, the simple statement that God gives us so we can understand it and actually do it. So that means we cannot love God any old way we please. To do so would actually constitute idolatry. For underneath every sin is idolatry. Idolatry, a very basic definition of it is this. Idolatry is putting someone or something else in the place of God. So we must see our idols for what they are and idolatry for what it is. See, idols are already in the human heart. We're born with the capacity. The Apostle Paul clearly tells Christians that the works of the flesh are already in the human heart. Like, for example, in 
Galatians, notice what it says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, and then in verse number 20, idolatry, and then at the end of the verse, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So idolatry is sin and a fruit of the sinful nature. It's already there in us. Idols are also impersonal and powerless. If I were going to just bring some things up from Scripture, idols from Scripture are deaf, blind, helpless, and dead. Idols are stupid and dumb. Idols are nothing. Demons are behind idolatry. Idols are not God. Idols provoke the Lord to jealousy. He is not, he will not share his glory with another. Idols have no comparison at all whatsoever to the true and living God. In fact, those who practice idolatry, the Bible says, forget God, go astray from God, pollute the name of God, defile the sanctuary of God. They are in, uh, they are in a sense, for, forsake God, provoke God. And of course, in our passage in Exodus, they hate God. That's the bottom line. Also, they're Romans tells us they are vain in their imaginations, idolaters. They are ignorant and foolish. They are inflamed by their idols. They hold fast to the deceit and the lies. They carry, they're carried away by it. They grow, go after idols in their heart. They are mad for their idols. They boast about their idols. They have fellowship with demons. They ask counsel of their idols. They look to idols for deliverance and swear by their idols. So all these things, Scripture warns us not to do. God takes this very serious. Matter of fact, when I was looking at this, there were so many Scriptures. I said, I, I, there's no way I can cover all of them. So I just gave you a whole list of everything's connected with Scripture in, in that whole list. So that brings me, of course, this morning to the reasons the second commandment of, of its prohibitions in Exodus, back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 and 6, uh, getting back to our text, and the second one would be this, uh, the second reason would be that God cannot, he cannot let the sin of idolatry grow, go unpunished, or, thankfully this is here, faithfulness go un unrewarded. So those who continue to, in a loveless relationship and disobedience, uh, and disobedience to God, are actually cursed. The sin of idolatry, in other words, has long fingers. If not repented of, it reaches to the succeeding generations, affecting great grandchildren and great great grandchildren. Look at our text in verse number. Uh, 5 of chapter 20. It says in the middle of the text, it says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, to, uh, on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. So right here, this text does not say that God holds one's son or grandson personally responsible for their father's sin, like Ezekiel teaches already in the scripture that the person who sinned whose sins will die, the son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the, of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. 
However, in saying that, the notion that others are affected by one's sin is not foreign to the Old Testament or to the Bible itself. The Bible warns us often that our sin can affect other people, can influence other people, even though they did not commit it, they are affected by it. Now, the punishment here in our text in Exodus 20 is for the father's sin of idolatry. This text does not, or excuse me, does hold out the threat that one's descendants may suffer for their parents' sin of idolatry. You got that? So parents have a great influence over their children about how they think about God and how they respond to God. And they will not only see that in your words, but they will mostly see it in your lifestyle, how you live, what you do. Is God really first in your life? Or is God just an add-on to your schedule? If I get to it, maybe I'll do it. Or is God first in your life where you have a seriousness about what, how, how you're, you're reflecting your relationship with God to other people, especially to your children? Now look at this passage of Scripture on the screen from Leviticus 26, 27 through 30, it says, Yet if, in spite of of this, you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you, and I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. Verse 30, I then will destroy your high places, and cut down your incense altars, and heap your remains on the remains of your idols, for my soul shall abhor you. So again, in this context, it's about where the person's love is, where the person's priorities are. If parents are guilty of idolatry and pass on this practice to their children, and if Successive generations continue the sins of the parents. According to Scripture, there will be a punishment that's connected to that. That those who transgress God's will and do not keep his commandments show that they do not love God. They love something, they worship something, but not God, not the God of the Bible, (coughs) not the God of heaven and earth, not the God personified to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, they actually hate him. Which means that God punishes this sin by removing his care for, his protection of, and help regarding disobedient, idolatrous people. So the only way the sin of idolatry can be squashed is by putting idols in our heart aside and to death, and then turn, serve, and love the true and living God. So the Lord is quite serious about it, that this is a kind of sin that reaches into succeeding generations, if not stopped. 
and it brings the punishment of the original person who passed it on to the generations to the other generations. And the, of course, the only thing that's going to arrest this is someone's faith in Christ. That will arrest your whole past. And so when a person comes to Christ, all that is ended, and now you learn how to worship God the way Scripture teaches us. Now, this brings me also back to the second part of, uh, in verse number 6 of Exodus 20, which I am so glad it is here. For those who love God and obey him, they are blessed. Notice what it says in verse 6. But showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So no, in other words, verse 6 is in stark contrast to verse 5, and again shows God's character to us, which informs us that the same holy and righteous God who cannot let sin go unpunished is the same God who shows his mercy not to a few generations, but to thousands of generations. Now, the remedy to end committing the sin of idolatry is simply this. It's God's love. That's what ends the sin of idolatry. It's God's love. Notice the verse again, showing loving kindness. And that's what God does. He has shown us through the history his love towards humanity. That's why even in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love to us in that while we were sinners, he died for us, right? What, how does he demonstrate that? By the cross, right? What he accomplished on the cross. It's a demonstration of all humanity of his love toward those who are created in his image, but his special love to those who actually believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and come to the Lord Jesus Christ, to be saved and to be forgiven and to be redeemed and to be brought into the family of God and to be made right with God. So God is showing loving kindness to thousands. So if you pass on the gospel to the next generation, to your kids and their kids to their kids and onward and onward, that God will bring that blessing to that generation and they will re they will re uh, reap the results of that blessing, which is the kindness, the long-suffering, the gentleness of God. And of course, what, what does God also expects his people to love him and that loving God and keeping his commandments are one and the same. They are, they're not separate from each other. Just like a simple passage of scripture like Micah 6, 8, where it says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? to love kindness, to walk humbly with God. See, so man's sin may ripple with negative consequences unto the fourth generation, but look at the wonder of our text here in Exodus. God's faithfulness is not limited, in other words, but extends to a thousand generations. That means there is no end to God's faithful love. That is, those who love me at the end of that passage and keep my commandments. So this verse stresses God's ginormous grace as a blessing for obedience. That means that his grace is a blessing for obedience and is infinitely greater than his judgment for disobedience. 
So, so here is an interesting note as I was studying that good families can last a thousand generations. That's those who worship the truly with God. But bad families often do not make it to the fifth generation. Now, what happens to them? You know what happens to them? They die out. Like it says in Numbers, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. So we are warned in Scripture against idolatry and its devastating effects. Again, take your Bibles, being that you're right there in Exodus, and turn to Deuteronomy. Right? Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All right? Look at Deuteronomy and notice. Chapter 4, verse number 19, and then verse 23 to verse 28. Notice the words here. In verse number 19, it says, And beware, there's that word, beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Verse, now go to verse number 23 of Deuteronomy chapter 4. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make for yourselves a graven image, image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you for the Lord your God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. Verse 25, when you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and, have, and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger. Verse 26, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land for you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but will utterly be utterly destroyed. And then in verse number 28, there you will serve gods. The works of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. He says, if you're going to worship other than me, go ahead and do it, and you'll bear the results of it. You will live a lie, and you will think that you are living what is pleasing and honorable before the true and living God, and you will not be. You will not be. So thinking of, the, of that, you know, in biblical history, it really bears out that because idolatry is so rampant in both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, that the judgment of God was inevitable, and it was because of idolatry, that the northern kingdom was defeated by uh, the nation of Assyria and brought into exile, and the southern kingdom was defeated by Babylon, and the Babylonian exile <clears throat> landed a fatal blow 
to idolatry amongst God's people. And then when we come to the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul confronting in every place he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. We come to a, a book like Acts, the historical book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. And what does he does? He comes to Athens. He comes to the philosophers. So in a very real way, the culture has replaced the worship of the living God now with philosophy, right? Man has the answers. And so we are to follow what man says. And as Paul was uh, tromping through Athens, it says there he, uh, his spirit was provoked and he, he observed the city full of idols. How did that happen? And then he goes on to say this, listen, what you worship in ignorance, I will proclaim to you. And he begins to proclaim to them the true and living God. And he said, it says in scripture, so Paul stood in the midst of Aragopagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects, for I am passing through and examining the objects of your worship. And I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. And this is what he says. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations. And then he goes on to say in verse 29 of Acts 17, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, <clears throat> having finished, furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So, so, so you can go not only to Athens, but any place, and you're going to find that there are objects of worship that people formulate in their mind as God and begin to give them trust and give them attention. So what should we do? Well, in the present, there are some things that we should do according to Scripture. First of all, once we get a biblical understanding of idols or idolatry, number one, keep away from them, right? It says in Scripture in Joshua 23, verse 7 and 8, so that you will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them, but you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done this day. So he tells us very clearly that we are to Cling to the Lord thy God. And then, then in the New Testament, uh, in the probably a very important passage of Scripture, and, and as I was studying it back then, I, I may have not realized that he, uh, John, in 1 John chapter 5, he mentions there is a sin leading to death, and there's a sin that is not leading to death. And 
as I began to realize the sin that leads to death is the sin of idolatry, is the sin of having a misunderstanding of who God is and then living your life accordingly. And that's, this is what his advice is to those who are reading First John 5. In verse number 20, he says, he kept saying in the passage, we know, we know, we know. Who knows? The church knows. The Christians are to know the truth, right? And the truth will make them free. And then it says in verse 20 of First John chapter 5, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And this is how he ends the epistle. Verse 21, little children, guard yourself from idols. And he says that for this reason, that we are to be careful, that we are not thinking about God in a way that does not, or, or in other words, if it doesn't come from Scripture and Scripture is not formulating our understanding of God, then don't go there. Don't think God is something when He's not. Don't uh, uh, add or take away from a characteristic of God that is not there. So keep away from idolatry. The second thing is to flee from it. Very uh, clearly, 1 Corinthians 10 14, therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. In other words, run as fast as you can and as far as you can you can from idolatry. And then we learned from Deuteronomy that a third thing would be not to have anything connected with idolatry in their houses or in your house, where it says in De- Deuteronomy 7, verse 26, you shall not bring an abomination into your house. Of course, it could be also on the dashboards of your car or on hanging on the mirrors of your vehicle, statues and rosary beads and all those things. And I, now just think about that for a moment. Sometimes people have a statue of Mary or a statue of St. Christopher or a statue of or rosary beads around their, their mirror or something like that. See, what they're thinking is this, that somehow that statue has power to protect me. Unconsciously, that's what they're thinking, or consciously they're thinking that. That's why I have it there. Oh, don't take that from me, because man, I got to get a car wreck if I if it's that. That's my car. That's my little luck charm. That's my little protection charm. See, that's what happens: is we we innocently may put that there, and then we go and trust it that it's going to do something magical for us, and it's not. They mean nothing. They mean nothing. I tell people the story that when I became a Christian. Um, someone had, and I was going overseas to join in the Marine Corps, someone had given me a present, uh, and the present was a uh, St. Christopher medal. And St. Christopher is supposed to be uh, who protects you on your travels. And um, I came to the place where I realized that um, that's not the case, you know, that no one can protect me as, except God is the only one who could protect me. And so when I actually became a Christian, that was before I became a Christian, I kind of threw, uh, symbolically, uh, but I actually did it, threw the St. Christopher medal in uh, the Mediterranean Sea, so somewhere down under the med there, in the bottom, so go, somebody wants to go uh, die for it, you can do that. But I only did it for this reason, I realized 
that I myself was putting special emphasis on these images that somehow there was some mystical thing connected to them that can somehow protect me and that just wasn't true. So I flung it over, overboard. And uh, I, I only did that because of, of I, re I realized that, that these scriptures are really serious about what we trust in to protect us. And many times it's very, very mystical and uh, the fancies of our own mind create things that, uh, you know, these, these in our minds that, that somehow these objects have some kind of power to them, and they don't. And that's the, that's the great problem of all these things. So that would lead me to the next thing, is not to intermarry with those who practice idolatry. So a, a believer and an unbeliever getting together and marrying, once they understand what, it, what, what being a believer is, should never, an unbeliever, a believer should never, ever consider marrying an uh, unbeliever. Why? Because they do not have what you have. They may get it, but you may not be the instrument of evangelism uh, to share the gospel with them that they may come to believe. All right? But so right at the get-go, you pray for someone's uh, salvation, but to marry someone uh, who does not believe in Jesus Christ and is a faithful genuine believer, you should never consider marrying young people. You should never consider marrying an unbeliever. Make sure you're a believer first, but never consider marrying an unbeliever. I can't stress that more because what happens is that when people do meet other people and uh, they get bit by the love bug, right? all the theology goes out the window. Well, what happened to this passage and what happened to this passage? All right, And thank the Lord uh, he does. He is merciful in spite of us to save some people who have done that and save both of them. And uh, so, anyway, if we're not believers, we don't know any difference. But when we're believers, we do. And so that means we also should not make arrangements with those who practice idolatry. All right. That means those who worship heavenly bodies or angels or departed spirits or earthly creatures or images or anything that replaces God. Because the objects of their worship are they sacrifice to them, they burn incense to them, they pray to them, they, they bow to them, they kiss them, they sing and dance to them, and even they cut their flesh to them tells us in first all of these I have scripture for like in first Kings 1828 it says so they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them in their idolatrous worship a lot of people do those things today because they have a wrong understanding of who God is and then of course one of the, the last things is that we refuse to engage in it at all, even if threatened by death. Now, if you remembered Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue or to worship his image, and, and what did he say? What did they say to King Nebuchadnezzar? This is what they said. And even if he does not, that means rescue us from the judgment of Nebuchadnezzar, 
Even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, I, we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. So to have that kind of staunch position against any kind of form of idolatry is what we ought to have as believers and have a correct balance of things. Now you say, well, what about in the future? The future, in the future, idolatry will still play a, a, a huge part when the false prophet will go one step further and he will actually make an image appear alive. We learn in Revelation chapter 13 that the image of the beast will be worshipped before the return of Christ. You, you should turn there, Revelation chapter 13. And of course, in 2 Thessalonians, it also tells us that they're going to believe what is false. Now, what is, what is the false thing they believe in the future? Well, they believe the claim of Antichrist that he's a God greater than all gods. They believe the lie as if it is the truth. They believe in him a false God, but not according to revealed truth. The scriptures, according to the signs that point to the reality of his claim, keeping the rejecter of truth spellbound in admiration to the lawless one as being God himself. In Revelation 13, 12, the, prophet, the false prophet's job was to draw worship to the first beast, for it says there, he exercised all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Now, without going through it all, what happens in the end times when Antichrist comes on the scene, what happens here is that there's going to be a kind of mock death and mock resurrection where he is healed, healed from a fatal wound, Right, And so Satan's desire has always been and will always be a desire to be God, to show himself that he is just as close to God as you can be. Matter of fact, he is God. So Satan has a particular goal in mind. To reach his goal, he must deceive the whole world and get them to worship him. So his goal is, I believe, twofold to wear out the saints, and to get people to worship himself. Now, this uh, kind of illustrates what I'm talking about because there is such a thing in Scripture as a diabolical, a diabolical trinity. First, you have the, the, you have the unholy trinity. You have the dragon that represents Satan himself, and he is the counterfeit father. You have, secondly, the Antichrist from Revelation 13, 1 through 10. He is the man of lawlessness. He is the counterfeit son, the beast out of the sea. And then, of course, you have the false prophet. The false prophet is the religious leader. He is the counterfeit Holy Spirit, and he is the beast out of the earth. So the dragon gives the Antichrist power, a throne and great authority, for it says in Revelation 13:2, and the dragon gave him power, his throne and great authority, and he was given the authority to rule politically because he will be the ruler of the final world empire, empire spoken of 
in Daniel, Daniel, he has a method of how to gain the following, that Antichrist or the slash the man of sin will truly be an amazing figure and will display a subtle magnetic draw upon people of the world. His worship included image worship. And Revelation 13, notice in verse 14 and 15, it says this, and of course, remember this, that all idolatry is devil worship. And he deceived those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast, that's the Antichrist, who had the wound of the sword and has come to life, verse 15, it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast and to the image of the beast uh, would that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as to worship the image of the beast to be killed, or who did not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So, in other words, that part of what's going on there is that this image, this idol, will actually come to life, and it will speak. That will be quite amazing, right? Well, back in 1964, Walt Disney unveiled the technological marvel at the New World's Fair, it was a representation of Abraham Lincoln that moved, spoke, and even rose to his feet from a sitting position. Disney called this new form of animation audio animatronics. Man had found a way to make an inanimate object move, talk, and exhibit even facial expressions using the special form of robotics. I, I actually went to see it. It wasn't there at the World's Fair, but somewhere else where they transferred it to it. It was quite amazing. That was many years ago. Now, since then, we have come a long way. You can see all types of man-made, inanimate objects miraculously come to life through audio animatronics. Even the Creation Museum and the Ark Project has implemented these in their lifelike displays, and they're quite amazing. It remains to be seen how far technology will advance before the time comes for the lifelike image of the beast to make its entrance. So in other words, the false prophet will delude much of humanity into believing he has the power to create life. And remember, real biblical worship, we are always challenged with the exercise of the mind in which divine revelation molds and shapes us. False worship is ignorant worship because there is no reliable source of truth to exercise the mind, to evaluate whether it is true or false. Religion may, be, may begin with an emotional response, but in time there must come a thought response. We must examine what we're experiencing what we're feeling, what we're involved in. So God's people are always called to biblical discernment in respect to teachings and experiences as to whether they are true or false. So these days, these days in which we live, there is an unhealthy trust in man's knowledge to save the world. Climate change, come on. We're going to be able to change the climate and save the planet? This is a disposable planet. Don't worry about the planet. 
Today's segments of society deify science and mankind's capacity to make materials on earth to conform to his will. The mantra is, man, human beings control life, arrogantly actually defying God. In other words, the worship of technology and science and medicine where man's own mind is trusted to obtain some kind of utopia on earth which can be generated by techno-wizards and scientists. Instead of worshiping, like Paul said, the creator, they worship the technological works of their own hands. But with this philosophy widely spread throughout the world, who needs God? And that, that's what's happening today. Who needs God? So the bottom line is this. In relation to the first two commandments, God did not reveal himself in a physical form. God has made himself known through his voice and inscribed what he said on two tablets of stone and on parchment in the written word. This means that any symbolic representation of God in order to depict him in a physical form will be a distortion and will be grossly insufficient to properly characterize who he really is. Therefore, that is idolatry. Now, do you recall what is recorded in 1 Thessalonians when the people of Thessalonica came to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ as their own Lord and Savior, write out, I mean, idolaters. This is what it says. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So, let us be careful. Let us be careful to grow in our love for the Lord and our obedience to his commands and that the motivation and zeal in our heart will be to please the Lord Jesus Christ and all things according to the scriptures. And I guess I'll just end with this that the Apostle Paul ended with, or John ended with, little children, Guard yourself from idols. Let's pray. Lord, again, I thank you for all that the scriptures say about this subject. It is everywhere, Lord. It is in every culture. It is in every geographical area. It is in every religious community. It is even in the political realm and the social realm. And Lord, I just pray you have guarded us with Scripture. You have told us truly who you are. So I pray, Lord, today that if we have not come to believe in you through Jesus Christ, The only solution to our sin, 
to being forgiven and to being made to being made right with you. If we have not done that, today would be the day so you can rescue us from our false understanding of you and our idolatry. And I pray, Lord, for those who know you, keep us steadfast in growing in our relationship with you, our understanding of Scripture and your character, and bring us to the place where we genuinely have a zeal in our heart to love you and to please you in all things. And I pray this this morning in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together.